one and all to Populist. I'm Steve Hafer. This is episode 34, or episode 14 of season two, if that's your preference. Returning to Sharon today's fun with me is the J.R. Ewing to my Blake Carrington. It's Kirk Trudner. How you doing, buddy? Hi, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the episode, Steve said. Today, we are going to be delving into the best TV shows of the 1980s. Wow. What? a wonderful playground to have been in for the past couple of weeks. A lot of fun doing research on this one. Brought back a lot of memories from when uh, we first got to know each other and we're uh, working at Universal. I got to tell you, this one was a little fuzzy for me at first because one, we were just of that age. So, you know, I wasn't watching as much TV as religiously as I have at other times in my life, you know, because you actually had money for the first time. So we we're going out to ball games or, you know, going to clubs or hanging out with friends. And so I wasn't really watching and uh, TiVo really hadn't become invented at that stage. It was a little fuzzier than, say, the 70s or the 90s were for me for television. Uh, but a lot of great shows to deal with here. Oh, I had so much fun going back, uh, just reliving some of those those shows. I mean, this is kind of in that funny spot between, you know, Taping and, and DVRs were still not, you know, 100% in every house. And we hadn't gotten to social media yet. So you had that kind of fuzzy area where you really had to. I mean, there's a couple shows on my list that if I didn't watch them the next day in the break room, I would have been completely ostracized because everybody would have been talking about those shows. <laughs> right. So you, you almost had to keep up on some of them, you know, as well. They were they were true social media shows before social media. Yeah. And Everybody, don't get me wrong. I've seen these shows. I know it's just not, it's not like uh, when you're younger, when you have nothing else to do, you can't afford to go anywhere. So you're just watching TV all the time and whatever. And just so our viewers are clear, because there's a lot of shows that touch a certain decade, you know, that, oh, they had one season. So we, we made our own little criteria for this. And we're saying a show had to debut no earlier than 1979. So that gave it a run in into the 80s. Um, so that means shows like mash or happy days or the Jeffersons, they don't qualify for this. Uh, and also no later than 1988. So at least they had two seasons in the eighties on that end. And so no quantum leap and no Seinfeld, they don't, you know, qualify for this. Right. Um, but right. If a series did start earlier and span the entire decade, uh, then we're going to, uh, we're going to allow that. And, uh, Kirk and I, I had just, such a great yeah. conversation about this off air and, um, just so you know, Kirk, I ended up not using those, <laughs> or at least not both of them. I used one of them, <laughs> and it may not be the one you well, think. You know, and, <laughs> and, and and you know, when we talk criteria on this, my first guiding light North Star criteria on this topic was: Did it feel like an '80s show? Mm -hmm. If you think about this show, do the '80s first and foremost come to your mind? And I think all of mine really do have that that hallmark. They just feel eighties. They feel of that time. Right. Well, I think also just because most of them are just trying to rep represent the time they fall into that naturally. But to your point, some were more iconic and more versed at it than others. That was actually more like the tie breaking thing for me. I, as always, I, I was going for great characters, great execution of story. Um, did it have a decent run in year? Didn't have to go for a million years. Cause we're all talking about a 10, 11 year 
time span here, but did it go for a few years? And does it stand up well today? Still, that was kind of important to me. Can you watch it back now and yeah. just go, oh my God, that's so dated. It might seem dated in its style or fashion, but is it still watchable? Is it still entertaining? And then, like you said, uh, when in doubt, was it a reflection of the times? Did it scream 80s to you? Did it just feel like the 1980s, which is is just so important because the 80s were such a unique time in the sense that we're coming out of the 70s. We're getting into the, the pop garish 80s feel. We still had the ability on television to consider shows like Manimal or Misfist of Science you know, for <laughs> primetime television before we started getting into the more angsty 90s right. kind of thing. So you still had a little bit of that fanciful kind of talking car. I mean, Knight Rider. Yeah. <laughs> Knight Rider was a huge hit in the 80s. It's a talking car, for goodness sakes. Yeah. You know, but that was considered a high drama. That was that to me is a a such a stereotypical 80s show. It grabbed the audience. It had the crime and drama for those people. It had the action for those people. It had David Hasselhoff for the women. It had a cool techno car for the motorheads. It was crossing and checking off a lot of boxes. Oh, absolutely. But it, it had the good fortune to debut in the early part of the decade as opposed to the later part of the decade, because I don't know that it would have made the air in 89 or 90. Yeah, exactly. And it gave birth to similar things like Airwolf and Street Hawk. And Street you know, Hawk. as much as I love the first six episodes <laughs> of Airwolf, uh, Knight Rider was by far superior to those other two series. <laughs> it's time to get the lady, Dom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great stuff. Great, great, dun, great dun, stuff. Dun, 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 all right. Well, I'm kind of that's itching one to get other into thing this I'm going to say about all of the all of the shows, and this is a soapbox I want to get on for half the a music. second, and that is absolutely in 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 the wake of last week's episode, when we were talking about great composers and Chris Ledesma, who was wonderful. Thank yeah. you, Chris. Oh, one of the all time um, great guests. Every one of my shows has a theme song that you remember. And I think it is a tragedy that we're losing the theme song on network television. Good news is about streaming. You don't have to worry about the time constraints. So you can have longer uh, themes. Like, uh, you know, Jill and I watched Star Trek Picard a couple nights ago, and that is a beautiful long opening sequence and a beautiful theme that goes with it. And I think we're really missing out that we don't have those well, anymore. But almost everyone, if not every one of my shows, you could hum the theme song to. Thank you to the age of uh, commercials and the importance of commercials to uh, the networks and their never-ending attempt to get as much money as possible. They squeeze the credits at the end, and they no whip kidding. them by at warp speed, and now they've taken away the, the intros and all the great music. It's a shame. It's too bad. It really All is. All right, let's get into this. And uh, you went first last time, so I'll go first this time, which means you get to set the over-under for this week, as we do. The over-under. All right, so for our common selections, those that are on our that we each have on our list but not in the exact same spot, I'm going to do the over-under at three and a half. Three and a half. Uh, I'm going to take the over on that. Okay. I just, ha just have a little feeling that we're going to – we're going to hit on a little more than that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, then for the exact match, the exact same show and the exact same spot on our list, that is going to be 0. 0.5. Hmm. I'm, I'm basically giving you the field. Yeah. I got it. I, how can I not? I got to take, I'll take the over. <laughs> All right. Well, let's find out how we do. You ready to go? Almost because we have one more segment and that is unlisted. 
Oh, yes. And in the Unlisted, uh, it's where Kirk and I tell you uh, a little preview of three of the things that will not be making our list today. Uh, not making my list today will be the Emmy Award-winning L.A. Law or the iconic primetime soap Dynasty or the immensely popular yet crass and often sophomoric Married with Children. Not going to be on my list. Well, let's see if if uh, none of those shows are on my list either. So let me see if I'm matching you or if you're matching me. Not on my list will be Manimal. <laughs> you just love saying that. Misfits of Science. <laughs> those to me are the, the, the epitome of just dopey 80s television. Uh, both from Universal Studios. So very proud Yay. of that. So no Manimal, no Misfits of Science. And the third show is also a Universal show. Also begins with M, and I think we're going to get a lot of booze from the uh, the the peanut gallery. Miami Vice is not on my list. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. Uh-huh. I'll tell you a little story about that later. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into it, and uh, we'll start with our number 10. And my number 10 is... Actually, one of my personal favorites on this list, just as far as loved it, always made me feel good, always made me laugh, thought I'd had a good story to tell, and it was a nice twist on a normal sitcom, and that is the show Family Ties. There's so many memorable 80s sitcoms. I tried to go with not only smart shows, but also shows with a new angle, um, where shows like Night Court and New Heart uh, are very worthy for our, for our list today. My choice, flip the script, where the kids were the more traditional or conservative set. And the parents, played by Michael Gross and Meredith Baxter-Burney, were the ex-hippie liberal pair who sometimes had to learn the lesson of the day. It was a nice take on the usual sitcom format. Uh, the show was supposed to feature the parents, but it introduced us all to Michael J. Fox as Alex P. Keaton, who won three Emmys for his role. Hilarious, funny show, brought us Michael J. Fox into superstardom, Family Ties, my number 10. It's a great choice. And you actually used some of the logic I was going to use. My number 10 is also a sitcom. And I did the same thing where I said, it's not X or Y. Like you said, it's not New Heart and it's not Night Court. I did the, <laughs> the, the same thing. My number 10 is New Heart. Uh, 184 episodes ran from 82 to 90. Um, just a powerhouse cast. I mean, this was a murderer's row. Tom Poston, Peter Scolari, Julia Duffy, Mary Fran, uh, Bob himself, the, the you know, <laughs> Hi, I'm Larry. This is my brother, Daryl. This is my other brother, Daryl. <laughs> William Sanderson, John Volstad, and Tony Poppenfuss. Um, great writer's room. It, it was a wonderful setup in that it allowed us to see this crazy little Vermont town through Bob's eyes. You know, he got to be the everyman and be that observational comedy that he does so well. And I really thought it suited him almost as well as the, the original Bob Newhart show. Uh, but the reason that this show is on the list and not others like Night Quarter Family Ties for me, it's the greatest series finale of all time. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, go look it up on on YouTube. But when Suzanne Plachette rolls over and looks at at Bob Newhart, it is comedy gold it is television gold it whoever came up with that who had the huevos to propose it and then for everybody to say hold hands and say let's do it it was awesome so funny show great cast um 
you know, very much comfort food comedy and the finale that puts it on my list at number 10. And the finale is a spoof of another famous eighties, uh, finale. So yeah, (laughs) it makes it even doubly great. We'll talk about that later. It is. Yeah. No. Okay. (laughs) Wow. You learn something on this show, everybody. That's right. All right. Good choice. Yeah. Uh, New Heart and Night Court, both fantastic comedies. Uh, I wish we were, you know, doing a top 12 or 13 or so. All right. Moving on. Number nine. My number nine is, it depends which camp you're talking to. It's one of the, the most treasured shows of the 80s. And sometimes it's one of the most forgotten shows about the 80s. Uh, well, I'm not going to forget it today. And that is the show from ABC, Moonlighting. Uh, it's the show that broke convention all over the place it defied the odds and then committed suicide (laughs) and that's probably why it's not higher on my list today um it was fresh irreverent offbeat uh it's pacing the characters mixed with uh, breaking the fourth wall sometimes was revolutionary they had cartoonish moments they also had drama and one of the best examples of sexual tension ever between two lead characters all this success despite the fact that bruce willis and sybil shepherd really didn't like each other in, in, in real life. Um, Curtis Armstrong, Alice Beasley were great supporting characters, and the show was just what we were looking for at the time, yet we didn't know it. Then, f- far too soon, the romance part of the show was realized, the sexual tension was gone, and like Samson in his strength, the show died also. Its strength was gone too. It was great TV why it lasted, as I said, would have been higher if they could have just milked that for a few more seasons, but still a great show, Moonlighting. Moonlighting is is one of my favorite shows of all time, and I'll just leave it at that and maybe even talk about it a little bit later on in my list maybe. as well. The maybe. first three seasons are <laughs> practically perfect. Yep. All right, but that does mean uh, you do have a number nine for yourself. What would that be? My number nine, do we have a bumper that says Kirk's cheat? <laughs> No, but I'm talking to the merchandising department now. <laughs> you you can just, yeah, we can get t-shirts made up. We can get coffee mugs, bumper stickers. Uh, my number nine is not a show, but you cannot talk about 80s television without talking about this. My number nine is MTV. The first four years of MTV before Viacom bought it and really tried to turn it into something that it wasn't. MTV was essentially one long show. It was VJs running videos, and it was revolutionary. It absolutely changed the music industry. It had the same impact that AM radio had and then FM radio had on rock and roll. It changed the idea that how you looked was almost, if not more important than how you sounded and how the music went. It shaped the musical landscape. It became a tastemaker and a kingmaker. It established new stars, Madonna, Duran Duran, Pat Benatar. It gave boost to those older artists that wanted to play the game, like a Peter Gabriel, Tina Turner, ZZ Top. It had impact across pop culture. Like the best TV, it was appointment television. Um, we did not have it on our cable system at home. So anytime I could go to a friend's house and watch MTV, I wanted to do it. Uh, 
it was great for the first couple of years. Again, before Viacom divided it up and started programming shows like Headbangers Ball and 120 Minutes and really kind of segmenting it, those first two to three years were just absolute Camelot for MTV. It was, again, appointment television, and that's why it's got to make my list at number nine. Boy, you know, you're talking about making the bumper stickers or whatever. Uh, let me pitch the first slogan. Cheating where no man has cheated before. Yikes, dude. A whole entire network? Let's see, I'm I'm not maybe real clear with the concept of what show is, but all right. I, I saw your thinly veiled excuse of it was like one big show. Wow. Is this kind of like your your uh your uh, bucket list destination of France? Uh it was Italy and it's a destination. Okay. Either way. It's a destination. So's Earth. No, sorry. I'm right. You stretched it. Oh, I stretched it. And by the way, when we make t-shirts, we're not putting the slogan as Kirk's cheat because that's just going to cause all sorts of problem for women, married women. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kirk's cheat. (laughs) There you go. All right, moving on. All right. Reining it back into the subject at hand. Number eight. My number eight kind of gave birth to, or a rebirth, (laughs) to a genre, and that's good because it's a medical show, and that is St. Elsewhere. It was on from 1982 to 1988 from NBC. A lot of the shows on my my list are NBC productions, and from the look of it, Kirk just gave birth to, or he has this on his list at number eight as well. Is that true, Kirk? I do have it at number eight. I am very impressed. I didn't think you would you would think about oh, Saint absolutely. Elsewhere. That's what it, Saint Elsewhere because you really can't find it anywhere. Is one of those un, is kind of a forgotten show. Absolutely, but it it is the template for a genre. I mean, back in the old days, they had Doctor Kildare. There was you know there was other medical shirts, uh, Marcus oh, Marcus Welby. But this was the forefather of what became the new thing, and you know uh, other shows like Chicago Hope and ER, and obviously you know big hitters followed in its footsteps. Um, it's, you know, it, uh, it was, had a great cast, uh, one, uh, 13 Emmys over the, the run, two of them for William Daniels, who I know very well as Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World. Um, but it gave birth to a lot of young, uh, careers also like Ed Begley Jr., Howie Mandel, uh, Denzel Washington. And then you Denzel, come with yeah. established people, like David, David Morris, Ed Flanders, Norman Lloyd, Christine Pickles, Bonnie Bartlett, Mark Harmon. Great, great cast. And the people that came and went on that series uh, all the time were uh, very outstanding. It was just made for a really, really good show. I won't talk anymore because I know you have some things to say. Well, I, you know, one of the one of the, the the comments I read when I was doing the research was, you know, medical dramas to this point before St. Elsewhere debuted. The doctors were always infallible and the patients always recovered. That was Medical Center. That was Marcus Welby, MD. That was, you know, the doctors. That was all all of that's how those yeah. shows played out. This series was different. The doctors were fallible. The 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 patients sometimes didn't get better. They they carried storylines over several episodes. Uh, you know, it, it was it was captivating television for me. And again, if you want to talk about really talked about endings, series finales. You know, the whole yep. thing was a dream. It was it was Tommy Westfall, you a know, with snow the snow globe, globe and did all that <laughs> take place in his mind. And then by extension, because there were so many crossovers on St. Elsewhere, Hill Street Blues, Homicide Life on the Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Cheers even dropped by. Mm-hmm. Does that mean all of this, 
all of those shows were just a dream. They were all just in Tommy's imagination. They dropped by Cheers. They went to the bar on on a day off or after a shift or whatever. But, but by extension, if, if they were imaginary, isn't all yeah. of it imaginary? I know. I know. Tinfoil hats arise. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. But, I, you know, and, and again, you know, one of the other one of the other things we're going to notice about a lot of the shows on our list is you also had people at the top, the executive producers, in this case, Joshua Brand and John Falsey, who not only had one great show, they had a number of great shows. So, you know, you can look at them and look at All Fly Away, Northern Exposure, St. Elsewhere. I mean, it's a pretty good body of work. Yeah, absolutely. Quality stuff. St. Elsewhere, a great show. All right. Well, that's uh, our first match and an exact one at that. I win the exact. Yeah, you do. I, I, ah, I didn't think that would happen. Nice. Number seven. And to celebrate that win uh, for my number seven, I'm going to give a Kirk cheat alert. <laughs> Tied at number seven for me are two series that are drastically different, but they're similar and they both started late in the decade, but they are both so good that I wanted to talk about them. And that is the wonder years and star Trek, the next generation, the wonder years uh, started in 1988, went through 1993 on ABC. And it was this family comedy slash drama that felt like an entertaining and packed hour of quality TV. Yet it was all done in 30 minutes each week. Fantastic coming of age story in the Vietnam era uh, of the late sixties and early seventies, where we all felt part of the family of Kevin Arnold played by Fred Savage and his friends, Winnie and Josh, as they discovered life and its lessons, full, full scripts, full stories, a lot of heartfelt emotion, uh, a lot of laughs, really well-rounded show star trek the next generation which went from 1987 to 1940 or 94 it was a syndicated show and it's possibly arguably the best of all the treks um it reestablished live action trek tv franchise after a 20-year drought from the original captain kirk series and a hundred years after the story of the captain kirk uh, star trek they really raised the bar for intelligent sci-fi in both story and characters they gave us a great look at the future of a possible thriving humanity coexisting alongside alien beings and synthetic AI creations uh, while exploring the final frontier. And Patrick Stewart's Jean-Luc Picard is an icon of sci-fi characters forever in my book. Two very strong uh, series that really meant a lot to their own genres. So Wonder Years and Star Trek tied in number seven for me. This is unforgivable. Having the Wonder Years that low, I think, is unforgivable. <laughs> and I will talk about that a little bit later on. Well, I think it goes to say that if both series occupied more of the 80s, just even one or two seasons more, then they're both on my Mount Rushmore, probably. Ah, uh, ah, uh, Steve, 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 <laughs> Steve, Steve. All right. My number seven, I'll chastise you a little later. My number seven is the only series... I think that has 1,819 episodes. <laughs> and the show I'm talking about is Late Night with David Letterman, which debuted in 1982 and ran until 1983. This was the the uh, NBC version that ran after The Tonight Show. Uh, it is safe to say that this show completely reinvented late night television. Up until Letterman left in 93 to go to CBS, NBC owned Late Night. They had Carson. They had Tom Snyder with the Tomorrow Show. Nobody else could really crack the code on how to do late night. Letterman's jumping over 
in 93 was just the latest volley in the talk show wars that opened up during the 80s with Chevy Chase and Magic Johnson, Arsenio Hall, probably the most successful of those uh, those, you know, spinoff type of things for Fox. You know, Joan Rivers tried to do it, but he had a quietly subversive way of doing things that brought unique, different approaches to the tried and true talk show format. The ripples of which are still being felt today. I mean, without Letterman from 82 to 93, you don't have Fallon. You probably don't have uh, uh, Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, the closest to what he's doing now is what Stephen Colbert is doing. Uh, the jokes are always smart. He always had great conversation. He never pandered. Uh, it was appointment television. Again, late night appointment television. Uh, if you didn't get the top 10 list, you, you kind of missed the entire show. Uh, it, it was something that changed the way I looked at late night. And I think it, it really did cause ripples we're still feeling today. So my number seven is late night with David Letterman. An amazing show to be sure. And definitely everything that you said. Um, I think we have a little different in approaches here. I was sticking to scripted things and you've already branched off into two things that weren't, which I guess is fine. So it's not on my list, but you will be hearing about it on my honorable mentions. Are you, no, are you chastising no, me? Saying, we have a different approach Are you here. chastising me? No, but just watch your chastising later because then I might have to let loose the hounds here, buddy. <laughs> oh. oh, episode 34 where the gloves came off. <laughs> you are a Kirk's cheat. All right. <laughs> and moving on. Number six. My number six is uh, something that's from your unlisted, but to me, it is the epitome of what you described as does it feel like the 80s? And that is the Michael Mann creation, Miami Vice from 1984 to 89, an NBC show. Uh, it, like I said, if there's a series that captures the fashion, style, sounds, and overall vibe of the 80s, I think Miami Vice really is it. Not always a consistent show. And so I had to think about this one and where it placed on my list, though. Um, but, you know, not very consistent week in and week out as far as the storyline is concerned. But it was produced and shot like a film, usually uh, high production values. The stars were charismatic. And when the stories were strong, it was great TV. Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas were household names by the end of the run as Crockett and Tubbs. Edward James almost gave a lot of memorable performances as their boss. And then we had Jan Hammer's score, Phil Collins song in the air tonight. Everybody remembers that from an incredibly strong pilot uh, episode. Uh, you had the linen suits, the pastel colors, the hair, the cars, the action. It was all Miami vice and it was all eighties. So it was worthy of my list at number six. Yeah, I know I'm kind of contradicting myself when I was talking about what shows feel like it. Cause they do feel like eighties. The problem is, all of those things you listed are things I despised about the 80s. <laughs> so it never really got on my radar. I never really caught into the show. I never really, you know, it just seemed overblown. And, and you know, if this is the direction that that we're going to be going now with TV, I didn't like it. So so it it it, it never really has has glommed onto my radar. So so absolutely worthy. I, I can't argue with it, but it's just not my cup of tea. Yeah, I liked it because the action sequence, for the most part, were pretty high quality, pretty good. It didn't look like a lot of punches were always being pulled and stuff like that, you know. But the story and the dialogue was not always consistent. And so that was the main problem that I had with it. But as I said, shot well. And if you're going to make a time capsule of showing somebody what, the, what a big part of the 80s was like, I think some scenes from Miami Vice wouldn't 
wouldn't be the worst argument. No, I, I, and I don't disagree. And I think you're absolutely right about the pilot. Michael Mann, the noted filmmaker, actually directed the pilot and gave them such a great template to work from after that. Uh, again, it's absolutely representative of the 80s. Uh, I, I can absolutely see it on, on your list. Like I said, it's just never, 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 never was one of my one of my favorites or my cup of tea. And this is the the reason that I'm really upset that the Wonder Years and Star Trek The Next Generation didn't have a couple more seasons because, ugh. <laughs> It was hard for me to write them in the order that I did <laughs> with my advice one step ahead. Ooh. <laughs> ah, brutal. Well, for my number six, I'm going to stay in the crime fighting genre. And, but compared to the show that you just talked about, which is full of angst and dramatic lighting, and it was all about style and uh, over substance. Mine's a little bit more casual. Mine is the 1980 to 1988 run of Magnum P.I., starring Tom Selleck Uh, over eight seasons and 162 episodes. They turned out dependable, entertaining television that balanced good comedy with some remarkable stories that for once portrayed Vietnam veterans as honorable, stable men. They weren't all damaged. They weren't all, you know, PTSD that these were gentlemen who had this experience and it came through in a number of episodes and it, it really showcased the camaraderie. Uh, the great thing about Selleck is he could do damn near anything. He could be a ne'er do well in loud shirts and in short shorts. And then in the next minute he could do a, a whole monologue on a complicated past in the Navy in Vietnam and any show that can get Frank Sinatra to be its guest star <laughs> has got to be along on the list somewhere. Um, everybody wanted to be, uh, Thomas Magnum. I mean, you're living in a beach house rent free. You got the Ferrari. You're solving crimes. I mean, it was perfect escapism television. One of the last bastions of that, I think, for the 1980s or for escapism television in general. Um, I love the show. I, I you know, it, it, it's one of those shows that is just, again, really resonates as the 80s with me. So number six for me is Magnum P.I. So a freeloader who's staying in a house and using the guy's his boss's car and. <laughs> moonlighting on him uh, taking other jobs no i'm kidding pretty it's, much yeah <laughs> uh it's a good choice and yeah and this was the other show that i was going round and round between this and mommy vice i was only going to put one of them on my list and they're both very reflective and so i find it funny that we put them at the exact same point on our list yes but, uh yeah fun show for sure higgins i loved higgins and you know a lot of people don't know it john hillerman's from texas that was an accent he did for eight years. It was remarkable. Yeah. All right. Moving on. We're one step away from our Mount Rushmore. That brings us to number five. My number five. It's one of the shows that I think for me, at least on first thought, you just kind of overlook it. You go, oh yeah, it was funny. It was cute. But then when you really start digging it, go, this is really a good show. It still has legs and it was kind of important at the same time. And that is the sitcom, the golden girls. Uh, this broke its own barriers for women's or slash seniors or women of a certain age. Uh, and it's that's the legacy of the show, along with being very funny. It had four accomplished actresses bringing the stories of four single friends in their quest to live full, rewarding lives as roommates in their later years. Uh, it brought the stories of these women uh, and into the consciousness of younger generations of viewers and into the mainstream. It helped pave the way for shows like Murphy Brown and designing women. Uh, it was really empowering for women and empowering for 
older women. Uh, it was endearing. It was funny. It still stands up very well today. It won 11 Emmy Awards, so it must have been doing something well, you know, back there in the day also. It's the Golden Girls, a golden series. It's my number five. This was the show that was really hard to leave off my list for all the reasons you just mentioned. Um, I, it, in my viewing of it over the years, it, it always seemed to be a little bit more one note uh, than I think a lot of people thought of it as. And I think that's more on me and my limited viewing of it. So it didn't make it. But I can absolutely see why it would be on there. And again, it's another one of those shows that, as you pointed out, amazing cast. I mean, you you couldn't get a a, a better murderer's row. Mm-hmm. I mean, female actresses, let alone just actors. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're just absolutely terrific comic geniuses. The timing was amazing. Uh, you know, it was a lot of fun to watch them. I just didn't have as much exposure to them as I probably should have. So didn't make room on the list for them. Understandable. I mean, that's, that was part of my initial thing is like, oh yeah, it's, it had the traditional cadence to comedy jokes and everything, but then you sit down and you'll watch a few of them and they don't. And some of the stories they went into dealt with amazing things. And, uh, it was, it was a lot deeper than you think. And I, I like it. Well, it sounds like I've got some catching up to do, which is awesome. What's your last pick before the Mount Rushmore? My number five is a show you already mentioned in part of your tie at number seven. And that is star Trek. The next generation kills me not to put it on Mount Rushmore. I know it really, really does because without, next gen there's none of the star trek we have of the past 35 to 40 years including this latest wave of discovery strange new worlds which starts in in may the animated series lower decks prodigy and the the love letter to next generation that's on right now star trek picard uh it had an impossible task when it came on it had to be something completely familiar yet completely new and satisfy the legions of the original series fans I mean, I'll be honest. I thought the first two seasons sucked. It sucked all over town. But (laughs) I forgot my rule, which is sci-fi series need a season or two to get the viewer familiar with the world they are building and the rules they are playing by in that. And so by the time they got to season three, the, the, the big bad was introduced. That was the Borg. The cliffhanger ending, first time they'd ever done a cliffhanger at the end of the season in the episode, uh, Best of Both Worlds Part One. Um, this is where I think everybody really hit their stride. The writers, the actors, uh, the producers, everybody kind of got on board to understand what they wanted to be, how true they could be to Roddenberry's original version of an idyllic future where everybody got along. But where does the conflict come in? How do you how do you manage those stories? And I think they walked that line very well. It had everything the original series had. Ultimately, a sense of adventure, humor, unique storytelling, techno babble. Uh, but everything was just a little bit better and deeper and richer. And by the time this series wrapped up, again, another great series finale. Um, it was a classic of its own right and really did set the stage for the next 30 to 50 years of Star Trek. So for me, uh, number five, Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah, and the other weight that was on their shoulders is the movies had just come out, you know, and really started hitting their stride and reclaiming this audience and really generating this new excitement about Star Trek. And so they had to come in there and shoot it like the movies and keep that production quality and keep that momentum. So there was even more pressure on them and they, they handled it all very well. And I know what you're saying. I agree about season three is where it really took off, but there are some people 
don't completely abandon the first two seasons. There are some nice little nuggets of episodes within the first two seasons, but uh, three season three is where it just takes off. Yeah. I, you almost have to watch the first couple seasons to appreciate the journey they took and how they adapted and evolved and got to, yeah. you know, and you're going to, you're going to learn about, uh, I, I think it's important. Deanna Troy. You're going to learn about data. You're going to learn about how did a Klingon get on the ship as a crew member. You know, that stuff is important to know. Right. All right. Very good. And now it is time for Mount Rushmore. And the Mount Rushmore is where Kirk and I take the four best on our list, the four that are separated from the rest, the ones that deserve some little extra attention and spotlight. And that is starting with number four. My number four is another sitcom, and it is The Cosby Show uh, from NBC 1984 through 1992. We all know the personal failings of (laughs) Cosby himself. Uh, But for today, I just want to commend the achievements of the Cosby show, the show Uh, it's the life adventures of the Huxtable family. Not only was it hilarious and it was hilarious. It was honest and a much needed in my mind, depiction of a successful upper middle-class American black family. And they lived in Brooklyn Uh, to say the show was powerful as a role model and as an educational look at how similar we all are when you can come right down to it is an understatement. The show was very important in that area and did so and delivered a very positive look at things every week. Every week we saw this wonderful family living a good life, dealing with many of the same day in and day out problems and solutions that most families have to deal with. And they did it while breaking away from the common stereotypical way that Hollywood has told stories of black characters in the past. Did it solve all racial problems? Of course not. But it was a huge step toward that end and a welcome change from the norm. And so you combine that with the great scripts, the great acting, uh, wonderful kids on the show, which is not always easy to do. You have to give her props to the Cosby show. Yeah, this one was tough. Um, it, it didn't make my list. And I got to be honest, I didn't even consider it from the very beginning. As soon as we started talking about it, I just knew that this one could have some real traps waiting for us some minds laid for it so um did i enjoy it when it was on the air absolutely is it impossible not to look at that now given what we know absolutely i can't reconcile and do the mental gymnastics so i took the easy way out and just didn't even didn't even consider it for the list yeah and for me uh just i don't know having worked day in and day out on sitcoms everything all i know is that was one person and the hundreds of others that did this collaborative effort and they put on something that was amazing and important. And I've got to give props to the network for taking that step and taking the approach that they took with a black family and how they portrayed them. Uh, it's just, to me, it's too important to, you know, not say, but I absolve Mr. Cosby himself of nothing and I am not touting him. Please don't get me wrong. It's, I, I want to commend the show. No, that and that's a, that's a good way to frame it. I I, I like that. Um, you're right. Behind every show, even one that's got a star in the title, you've got dozens, if not hundreds, of people who are working collaboratively to put together a unique, unified vision. So to recognize those people for the accomplishments on that show, I think yeah. is is and the charges were not brought against them at the time, so it's not like they were. Oh, let's work around this. You know, they were. <laughs> 
his names on the show because at that time he was the marketable guy. Right. So yeah. All right, let's move on on to better things and let's start with your Mount Rushmore. My Mount Rushmore starts with a show that I think is truly a benchmark in television production and began to turn the tide on how shows would be produced moving forward. This is the 1981 to 1997 classic Hill Street Blues. Uh, created by Stephen Bochco. I mean, talk about a great writer's room. Stephen Bochco, Dick Wolf, who's behind the entire Law & Order franchise and the Chicago franchise. David Milch, Anthony Yurkovich, Mark Frost. They put together a police show that had not been seen previously. I mean, these were cops, warts and all. It showed the struggle of a predominantly white precinct in a black neighborhood and began to show those struggles. Um, Daniel J. Trevati, who starred uh, in the show, leading a phenomenal cast, was quoted as saying, we incorporated elements of many things. We didn't do anything brand new. Handheld cameras have been used forever. Episodic stories have been used forever. The in-depth exploration of cops' private lives were used here and there in movies and TV. But nobody had put it all together like we did until Hill Street Blues, and that was fortuitous. And I think he's absolutely correct. I, I remember watching the very first show and thinking, this is really different from a cop show. And I was drawn in almost immediately. And then... This back in 1981, at the end of the first episode, the two guys you've been following all along are shot and presumably killed. It was really a unique statement that they made. Now, obviously, that was at the end of the pilot. Hill and Renko, who uh, were portrayed by Charlie Hayde and, and former UCLA basketball player Mike Warren, you know, were shown to recover. And then they became the bickering partners in that first season. But you had a great ensemble, great characters. Uh, it told some wonderful stories. I was drawn in immediately. Um, it's still one of my favorite shows, and that's Hill Street Blues. Very worthy choice. Uh, I'm a little surprised it's on this slot for your Mount Rushmore, though, to be quite honest. Ooh. But, uh, yeah, monumental series. Moving on. Number three. My number three is a show that, for me personally, was not appointment viewing because it's just it's not the genre that I'm drawn to, but to deny its impact as an 80s TV show would be a little foolish on my part, I think. And that is the primetime soap opera Dallas. Uh, started uh, in 1978, which is a little earlier than our criteria, but it ended in 1991, which means it occupied every single year of the 80s. Dallas was there and it was high up on the Nielsen ratings. Um, it's the show that put primetime soaps on the map, in my opinion. Uh, kind of created its own genre, which was used... Many, many times since then, uh, it became a popular genre. Uh, it's about the personal and professional dramas of the Ewing family. Uh, and uh, it commanded millions of viewers every week, cum culminating in the famous Series 3 finale of Who Shot JR? One of the most talked about episodes and cliffhangers uh, of at least in modern television. Um, and then the infamous finale of It Was All a Dream, which was what Newhart kind of spoofed. Oh, I see where you're going with that. Okay. The show was cunning. It was vicious. It was alluring and jaw-dropping all at the same time uh, with great characters that you just either loved or you hated or you loved to hate. It had it all. Dallas was what America wanted, and J.R. Ewing, played by Larry Hagman of I Dream of Genie, Genie fame, was their man. The Ewings were the family, and the rich and powerful lifestyle and backstabbing and drama of the Texas oil rich World played for 14 seasons at or near the top of the ratings, as I said before. It's the king of the primetime soaps, Dallas. 
You know, in this world, you're either a Yankees fan or a Red Sox fan, or you like chocolate or vanilla, like Dallas, or you like Dynasty. <laughs> I was a Dynasty guy. And let's face it, both of these shows were yeah. true guilty pleasure. I just gave the nod to Dallas because it came first. <laughs> uh, there was nothing redeeming about them. They were absolutely empty calories, but they did represent you know, a significant part of our viewing in the eighties. So while neither one of them made my list, I can absolutely understand why you would put one on there because again, to your point, it created a, a new genre and even, you know, dynasty has been, been, uh, you know, rebooted for, for, you know, this generation. And I think our, our guest is going to talk a little bit about that. I can't yeah. imagine she wouldn't, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, I can see where both shows could make a place on the list and you can make an argument for them. Let's move to your number three. My number three is your number nine. Uh, that is the television series Moonlighting. This is, I mean, when we said, let's do a show, an episode on 80s television, this is the first show that just popped right to the top of my mind. Yeah, me um, too. <laughs> like the 80s, it was endearing at its best and a hot mess at its worst. I mean, that completely sums up the 80s in a nutshell. Uh, the first three seasons, as we talked about, were lightning in a bottle. It was fun. It was funny. It was risque. It was new. It was different. We were watching Bruce Willis, you know, come of age right before our eyes. Um, nowadays, you mentioned Moonlighting and people remember the turmoil and how the show kind of cratered after Dave and Maddie, quote, did it. The, the Moonlighting curse. Um, I would want you to remember it for what it did. And that was just be incredibly creative. This was a show that focused on the detectives, not the cases that they solved. And these detectives were a perfect marriage of golden age, screwball comedy, Hepburn, Tracy banner with the zeitgeist of the eighties. And they tried unique things. The episode, dynamic pentameter, the musical numbers, breaking the fourth wall. I mean, they did so much stuff that was just unique and it was, they were meta before meta was cool. Uh, they pioneered the, dr the dramedy genre, it was truly appointment television. This is another one of those shows that if I didn't watch it on Tuesday nights, I didn't want to go into the break room on Wednesday because I knew everybody would be talking about it. Uh, it's still one of my favorite shows. Unfortunately, you can't get it anywhere. You can't stream it anywhere. I think the music licensing is just way too much for people at this point, which is too bad because I'd love to see a new generation get exposed to Moonlighting because it was it was terrific. So uh, number three for me is, is Moonlighting. Yeah. All right. Good choice. And uh, with that, you just gave me the win on the over-under for the commonalities. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think so. And the reason is... Number two. My number two is Hill Street Blues, which you just talked about a little while ago. You mentioned all the writers, and so I was going to talk a little, bit that, a little bit about that, but you did so well. So I will just talk about the cast a little bit more. Um, General Daniel J. Travanti, who you mentioned, uh, Veronica Hamill, Michael Conrad... Bruce Weitz, Betty Thomas, Michael Warren, Joe Spano, Dennis Franz, all these great, great actors who have done many, many other things, but they're just always good. They're just always so capable and talented in the portrayal of their characters that they just won us over right away. And we just believed they were the real deal, the real people. You mentioned the, the handheld camera work, uh, also their use of slang language uh, to incorporate all this raw, realistic, inclusive feel was new and just, a, it was a, it was a brainchild of Stephen Botchko and so successfully done. Uh, it married the gritty plots and the action with the empathetic characters and situations. Uh, you said everything else. It was just 
as you've also mentioned before, it's early appointment viewing uh, of the 80s. Let's be careful out there. Hill Street Blues. I love that show. Mike and my and Michael Conrad was such a revelation too because he was always the heavy. He was always the bad guy. You know, in the guest yeah. star stuff that he would do leading up to that. Yeah. And then for him to be the warm, you know, Phil Esterhouse in this show was just a, a revelation. I was so glad to read during the research. He actually won an Emmy for best supporting actor in the first season of Hill Street. A lot of people took notice of that. Yeah. And Bruce White's and uh Charles Hayden and Dennis Franz, their characters were so conflicted and so troubled and imperfect. Oh, but yeah. So damn interesting. And then I'm glad, glad why they took Dennis Franz on to, you know, another series and just great stuff. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. Well, it's, it's going to be hard to talk about my number two without sounding like a homer or, or gushing too much. Uh, but my number two is your your other number seven, uh, and that is the Wonder Years. Homer. Full disclosure, uh, I, I worked on the show for f- four seasons, um, but I was a huge fan of the show even before I got the chance to work on it. Um, Tilt Magazine wrote this very nicely and said, for a series rooted in the trappings of the American suburbs with all the classic sitcom tropes present, the Wonder Years is a benediction. It showed us what television could and would be, and far more importantly, what life actually looked like. Um, It's the only series to win an Emmy for Best Comedy after only six episodes. Also won a Peabody Award for that season as well. And it's a show to me that gets better with age. It's unabashedly nostalgic, but it absolutely hits all the right notes with the simple, familiar moments in life that we've all experienced. That first kiss that first dance, the sports teams that we were on, loss of a grandparent, all those small little moments were done so well and so uniquely well, not only seen through the eyes of 12-year-old Kevin Arnold, but through his adult self as well. It was a wonderful counterpoint. It provided opportunities for comedy. It provided opportunities for reflection, for warmth, for tying everything together. Um, It, to me, is still one of the best shows that has ever been done on series television. And again, I know I'm, I'm gushing, uh, but um, I feel so proud to have been part of this show. And it is certainly uh, for me, one of the best shows of the eighties kills me not to put it at the top, but, but the wonder years is number two. Oh, you're so cute when you gush. <laughs> is this the Valentine's day episode? <laughs> Everything you said is true, my friend. Uh, the only, like I said before, the only part of the criteria for me that it didn't hit very well is it doesn't feel like an 80s show. And part of that is obviously because it takes place in the 60s and 70s and feels very much like that because it does such a good job at it. But then it also had the bulk of its series in the 90s. So it's just a confluence of all over the place, you know, time-wise and decades for me. Um, so if it... If it had just started in like 86 or something, I think it's on my Mount Rushmore also, without a doubt. Great show. All right. Number one. And for me, yeah, it's a show that I've talked about before on our series way back in episode three. I have a feeling we're going to (laughs) tie. And that is the sitcom (laughs) Cheers. Uh, As Seinfeld uh, is to the 90s. Cheers is to that for me, the eighties and by Kirk's gyrations, which is something to behold. I think this is his number one as well. So I'll just say a little (laughs) 111 
Emmy nominations, <laughs> 28 wins, eight straight years in the ratings, top 10, six Golden Globes. That says a lot right by itself. Uh, my opinion is not unique here. It's a great show. It's a relatable sitcom with sophisticated humor, real life situations. It's centered around the local hangout that many of us would love to have in our lives. Um, it strove to challenge its viewers and never assumed the viewers were dumb and it raised the bar on how to write for that. Um, spun off the Tortellis and Frasier. And as we talked about before, one of the few times where the spinoff might actually, it's arguable, but might actually be better than the original. Um, it was, uh, the eighties sitcom to beat in my mind. It deserves to be on Mount Rushmore and it's on both of ours, obviously Kirk. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing about cheers. Cheers was a very simple premise done exceptionally well. The cast were all elite. They could do slapstick. They could do witty banter. They could do situational comedy all, all at an elite level. You know, 58 writers went through their writer room, yet they maintained the quality over the course of, of 11 seasons. And what was it? 275 episodes. The show never jumped the shark. Um, you know, you had mentioned that it was, it was top 10 for eight, eight out of 11 seasons. Um, it was number one for one season and it was top five seasons four through 10. I mean, it was an incredibly popular show. So it's so funny to hear that in season one, they were ranked 74th out of 75 shows. Brandon Tartikoff believed in the show and wanted to, to keep it going. And, and he was absolutely right. Um, the Charles brothers and Jim Burroughs took all the lessons they learned from taxi about workplace comedy and instilled it in this show. Um, it was funny from the very first opening, you know, pre pre-credit sequence all the way to the very touching final oh, I scene. I mean, this was a family that we spent the eighties with and they made the the eighties a lot easier to, to get through. The dialogue is still crisp. It's still funny. That's says a lot about the cast, the crew, the writers, the producers. Uh, it's hard not to, to see cheers, not number one uh, for the eighties. Yep. Must see TV. Yep. We're agreed, and uh, I've been watching it again lately. Uh, it's on late night on the Hallmark Channel, I believe it is. Uh, so we've been watching that a lot. It's good, good stuff. All right, great list. Um, great show. Great show. Let's get into our next segment, which is... Unlisted, the sequel. And in Unlisted, the sequel, it's uh, just a chance for us to give another shout-out as honorable mentions to some things that did not make our list but are quite worthy also. Um, what are some of the ones that made your unlisted the sequel? Well, you've talked about a few of them. Night Court was really one I wanted to kind of find a place for. At the end of the day, though, it was almost too comfort foodie. There wasn't anything mm -hmm. remarkable about it in any one way, shape, or form. You know, Harry Anderson was great. Larroquette was obviously great. I mean, didn't they retire the Emmy yeah. for him after a while, this best supporting yeah. actor? I mean, he won it like nine years in a row or something. They were just incredibly consistent. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it was fun. You, you always knew what you were going to get. Yeah. Um, one of the shows that I, I was trying to look at and, and cause I, it, it had a presence. I didn't watch it when it was on, but it certainly had a presence and I was aware of it was 30 something. And I thought, you know, is that, but, but again, when I look at my list, I just don't know what I take off to put that one on. Um, I guess in Miami Vice, LA Law, I really wanted to find a place for LA Law. I really, if there is a scene that is more unexpected than Rosalind Shea stepping down an elevator shaft, <laughs> I have no clue. 
I mean, it was it was just a really unique, fun show. Um, I liked L.A. Law a lot. I would have loved to have found a, a spot for it as well. Uh, so those are just a, a, a few of the ones. I'm sure there's hundreds of others, and everybody's going to have their own individual taste. But that that's where I landed. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree about 30-something. Came very close to making my list, um, as did uh, its Gary Shandling show, which I thought was a very unique, uh, oh yeah, uh, in, impressive uh, sitcom. Uh Cagney and Lacey, MacGyver, Murder, She Wrote, uh, all very strong shows. China Beach. Um, and then the two shows that I was going to list that were not scripted uh, were Late Night with David Letterman, of course. And I want to give a shout out to SportsCenter, ESPN SportsCenter. It was birthed in the 80s oh, yeah. and really changed yep. how that is done in the world. And then uh, the 80s version of Saturday Night Live, uh, which you and I talked about at nauseum before. Um, but they had a chance to lose the show because the not ready for primetime players had left. Lauren Michaels took a little sabbatical. Things weren't great in the first two years of the eighties. And then they caught it again. They caught their momentum. They brought in the great cast with Eddie Murphy, Chris, uh, Billy Crystal, John Lovitz, so forth, uh, and Phil Hartman. And then it just, it solidified itself in the place in uh, pop culture history. Mm-hmm. Um, Alf. Also, another little cute show that I liked uh, should should have been on paper. You went, really? Yeah, really. But somehow it was so charming and funny enough uh, that they survived for a number of years. So kudos to all those shows. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Um, and when we come back, we will uh, have a guest, special guest to talk any shows with us. Hey, I'm Jillian Clare, the host of the podcast, Thanks for Coming In. I've accumulated some pretty crazy audition stories over the past 20 years, and so have my friends. And I was like, you know what? No, I'm not going to do this. And then Disney calls and is like, we need you to come test for the AMA movies. I didn't know if my scene was going to get cut or not. Ooh, I could play that. Tune in every Thursday to hear your favorite actors tell the funniest, saddest, and most cringeworthy audition stories. Sometimes even the one that got away. Thanks for Coming In is available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back, and it's time for the guest list. And our returning guest today was our third guest ever on Populist. She's been a casting director for over 25 years, <laughs> casting television pilots, series, miniseries, reality shows, and even a horror film. She was nominated for an Emmy for her work on the series Monk. Love that show. Uh, she was VP of casting at both ABC Network and ABC Studios, and she has worked with famed director-producer Gary Marshall and is currently casting the series Dynasty, Nancy Drew, and Tom Swift for the CW Network. We're always thrilled to see her and to have her back, so let's say hello to our friend Sandy Logan. Hi, Sandy. Hi, guys. Hey, Sandy. How are you? What's <laughs> happening? You know, I'm like a super fan of pop. I'm a super fan. Oh, you, know. you know that, right? Oh, you're too kind. You are too kind. You are, and you're you're one of our little guiding angels because you have uh, we have talked about it, and you've given some nice uh, some thoughts and some insight and uh, recommendation too that we have incorporated into the show here and there. So yeah, you are definitely super fan, Sandy Logan. <laughs> I'm excited to be here for a second time. Excited to hear and see you both. Well, thank you. 
So how did it feel to jump back into the world of 80s television? Uh, you know, I feel like I never left 80s television. <laughs> With COVID, you know, COVID required us all to stay in our houses. And so part of that, you know, TV was shut down for a short period of time. Um, for me, it was almost six months where there was just no TV being made because it just wasn't safe. And so I started watching some old TV shows and I'd go on to these channels like MeTV that had all these old shows. So I was reliving, reliving. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I watched, well, I was watching Brady Bunch and I Dream of Genie and Love Boat. And I mean, I, I can't even get into all of them. Partridge Family was on there. Adam 12 of our little oh, while. Yeah. I, I just kept watching old television. And some of it really does not stand up. <laughs> <laughs> some of it does not. And then there are other shows where. But isn't that some of the charm? Yeah. Well, you know, like Adam 12 is, is not a great show looking back on it, but it had all these places in LA restaurants and landmarks that it was really fun to watch. So that was, that was, that was the fun part of that show for sure. I mean, I always loved a lot of the old Jack Webb shows like emergency Adam 12, mainly for the back lot. There's so many things you see on the back lot at universal that you go, Oh my gosh, that's not there anymore. But I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. It's because they burned it down for emergency. It's not there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your job uh, requires you anyway to keep up with current television. So I know you're very, very experienced, very versed viewer of things. And so and you love the things that have come before. So we thought the 80s would be definitely in your wheelhouse. Um, What was your criteria? Like, you know, Kirk really was looking for things that were speaking of the 80s, you know, to him for the most part. That was it really reflective of the 80s and uh uh, I was too, along with looking for, you know, good story, a little staying power. What was your criteria? Well, I decided to stay in the 80s. So I removed some shows that kind of started in the 70s. You know, Dallas was one of the first nighttime mm-hmm. shows. I kind of deleted that because I thought it really was created and developed in the 70s and then went on to be in the 80s. So I took some of the soap, one of my all-time favorite comedies. Yeah. If you listen to episode three, if not, please go back and listen to episode three. <laughs> so, um, but again, started in the seventies. So I took some of those away. Saturday mm. Night Live's not in my list, right? Because the seventies was kind of the iconic years of that show, really. Um, and then I didn't want to get something that was too late in the eighties. Murphy Brown started, I think, at the very end of the eighties, so it right. wasn't really an eighties show. So I tried to figure out a show that. When I think about the 80s, what did I spend my time watching? And I watched a lot of television. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you the dessert that comes with every Swanson TV dinner, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's a cookbook I, there. I'm telling you, we would put out the towels. My mom would bring us our, our dinners from you know, either on a plate or in a Swanson <laughs> TV dinner. And we would sit and we'd watch TV for hours. So... TV was a huge part of our life. And in, especially in the eighties, when it's those years when you're really learning how to be a human by watching television, mm-hmm. you know, you'd go to school and that's what you talk about. And you, you'd watch these characters and, and it sort of framed the way people acted. TV had that power. And I think through the years, the same has happened with all, any decade because it bonds people. 
when you when Seinfeld came out and everybody talked about Seinfeld, if you didn't watch it the night before, you were doomed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and same with Friends and same with I Love Lucy back in the 50s. My sure. mom said she never missed that show because everybody was talking about it. Yeah, back in the day in the eighties, when you know, one of the shows that I, I started talking about was Moonlighting, and if you didn't see Moonlighting on Tuesday night, you didn't want to be in the break room on Wednesday, you know, because everybody was talking about it. And this was really before DVRs became, you know, commonplace around the house or any kind of of alternative viewing options, as well. But I think you and I are thinking along the same lines. What are those shows that screamed eighties to me? Like when I think about it and I'll use moonlighting again, when we said, let's do eighties television shows, that was the first one that just bubbled right up. It made my list. (laughs) All right. It made Steve's too. So I think we're, we're all thinking along the same lines. So as you, as you think back on the eighties, Sandy, and you look at, at shows that started the decade and then where we ended in the decade, um, but was there a theme? Was there something that really kind of carried through the eighties? Because you started this, you started the, you know, with Manimal, Misfits of Science, <laughs> you know, Knight Rider, Street Hawk, Airwolf. And then we ended up with, you know, some some different shows like, you know, Seinfeld started in 89, but was, you know, more of a 90 show. But obviously we we there was some movement. What do you see as that movement? I think the shows went from lowbrow to highbrow. Mm-hmm. A little bit. I think there was a little bit more sophistication in the writing that happened. Um, part of it was because these shows were so successful that the writers actually got better. So they may not have changed the actual writers, but the writing got slicker and and mm-hmm. tighter. Um, and I would say that with a lot of those shows that you mentioned. And I think the comedies for a while took a little bit of a dip. They took a little bit of a dip. And then as they started to come back, and that's when you see the resurgence of comedies in the 90s. You know, there are a few that held their own. The Cosby Show, you know, held its own all the way through and things like that. But there were a lot of comedies that went away. And some of that, you know, Friday night TV, um, everybody steered away from that and started to go more into the Seinfeld and Friends and Frasier kind of world. And I think mm-hmm. it brought a little bit more sophistication to comedy, which is a weird word to use when right. you're talking about a sitcom, but a little bit more of a sophistication, a little bit more of a reflection on where America wanted to mm-hmm. go as opposed to just goofy television. I agree. And I talked a little about that when I was talking about Cheers, both in episode three. And yes, I talked about it today, but they didn't write as if their audience was dumb. They they wrote to where they were going to write and they knew that their audience would handle it or adapt and I, I respect that. And I think that sort of raising the bar is good and it pays off down the road and down the road and down the road. I think it also helped too, that, that network executives began to trust some of these bigger showrunners, the Stephen Bochco's of the world, the Anthony Yerkovich's of the world, David Milch's. And, you know, I, I'm sure with Bochco, when he said here, I want to do Hill street blues, but I want to kill the two leading characters at the end of the pilot. You know, that's a huge risk. But the network, and especially somebody like a Brandon Tartikoff, who was inheriting a third-place network and said, I'll try anything at this point in time, really was kind of a godfather for a lot of this stuff. I agree. And I think, yes, you know, it's interesting that has shifted a bit, too, in the year 2022. You know, the streaming streaming services are a little different than the networks, (laughs) the networks right now. So it's... Yeah, it's different. You have you have certain, you know, Greg Berlanti has 20 shows on the air, right? There's a real trust there. And you look at what's happening with um, Shonda Rhimes. You look at all the, the L.A. laws. You look at all the Chicago fires. You look at all the, uh, you know, it, it, it's just it's become this 
who do you trust to, to write shows and, um, and how do you manifest that into being more successful? Mm-hmm. And I think the eighties was definitely a birthing place for a lot of that, you know, as far as the writing standpoint and from the network standpoint and how they were going to respond and what they wanted to roll with and what direction they wanted to go. So let's, Let's get into your list a little bit here. Um, we'll go in reverse order as we always do. Let's go live in the past. <laughs> a trip down memory lane with Sandy Logan. It's a new podcast. <laughs> I love it. We'll start with your number 10. What made Sandy's number 10? Okay, so biggest fan. So I'm going to say um, listening to Kirk do a cheat with five Newmans. Last yes, guilty as charged. It's going to open the door for me because I am going to do a five-way tie for 10. Wow. They are not all starting with Newman, but they all start with the letter M. Oh. And I will I will pick the one that I that I feel the strongest about, but I'm gonna say these five need to be on this list. And they all for me represent the 80s. So here we go. Magnum P.I., Miami Vice, Murphy Brown, Married with Children, Matlock. Wow, very good. All for very different reasons. Married with Children really started Fox. I mean, that really that really launched it. It was America's America's most wanted cops and married with children, right? That's how that network really yes. got off the ground. So it wasn't my personal favorite show of the whole world, but it it launched a network. So it has to get some cred. Uh, Magnum P.I., you know. How do you not put Magnum P.I. somewhere on that <laughs> list? Miami Vice, 80s, Murphy Brown, incredible women empowerment. I mean, that was an incredible show. And then Matlock that everybody's mom and grandma yep. watched, right? So of the five, if you said to me, I have to. And still watch. Still watch. If I had to pick an, one of them, I would pick Miami Vice because it's the most iconic to what the 80s mm-hmm. represented. It changed the way we dressed. It changed the way we hung out. It changed the way we went to clubs. It changed the way, I mean, it, it gave a whole new meaning to. We did our drug deals. <laughs> it changed everything. We all got alligators as a pet. Um, but it was, it really reflected how, how we were as, as, as people. The, the, the colors, that was fantastic. Everything, the set designs were incredible on that show. Yep. And uh, brought back white, white blazers. Yep. I mean, come on. Guilty. <laughs> Not give credit to that show. I like this. I like the five-way tie. <laughs> five-way tie for the M's. All the M's. I say M's. What about your number nine? Number nine is Golden Girls, a show that still is uh, popular on television. Mm-hmm. It had an incredible cast of older women, which really wasn't being done with the exception of maybe Vivian Vance on I Love Lucy and Aunt B, I guess, on Andy Griffith. This was a group of older women, and they were still spunky and they were still frisky interested in relationships yeah frisky and it was an incredible cast these women were so good together every story on that show hit home some of them were heart-wrenching episodes and some of them were laughable episodes and definitely deserves to be in the top 10 agreed definitely love the show nice who you've got at number eight well, number eight, you know, I mentioned Matlock, uh, but really the cream of the crop is Murder, She Wrote. Hey. So that M was not tied. It's a bigger spot in the list. And um, 
bang, bang, it's Murder, She Wrote. It was, uh, it was a great show. Everybody, everybody watched Murder, She Wrote. I, I, didn't, I didn't do a whole lot of research on this episode, but I'm sure it was in the top 10 for most of the 80s. It was a very, I think it changed that genre of television, those dramas, because they were so easy to watch and you always got a final ending to it. It was really one of the best closed-ended procedurals that was on at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, Angela Lansbury, come on, break. And Len Carrier was, was, was guest starring on that for so many episodes. They ended up, of course, doing Sweeney Todd together years later. Uh, I love that show. My grandparents loved that show. And uh, I still like that, love that show. I want to know why nobody ever asked, why does a murder always happen when this lady's around? <laughs> I mean, if you want to talk about common denominators here, I'm just saying nobody ever connected the dots. The lesson you get from the show is don't move to Cabot Cove. Cabot Cove, the most dangerous place in America per capita. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. Stay as far away from her as you can. Excellent. What's your number seven? Number seven uh, is The Cosby Show. I know there's a lot of controversy with Bill Cosby these days. Um, and so I I say out loud, the controversy is, is really... Um, important for everyone to be aware of, to be educated on. The comedy of the show cannot be denied. And the writing was spot on. The family was so well cast, so well put together. The chemistry on every episode, the storylines that they covered about not only being a Black family, but being a Black successful family in America. And then watching how the kids reacted to different situations and how the parents parented that was brilliant and funny. Incredibly funny. Agreed. I'm, it made my, this, it was. Yeah. Steve had, had the show on his list as well. All the way on number four. (laughs) Uh, I, I, I kind of raised the white flag and said, I'm I'm not (laughs) going to delve into that, but he made a great point that it's not just Cosby who did that show. It was a whole cast, a whole crew, you know, and you got to recognize the work that they did. And I, I think that's spot on. And I agree with both of you. And I wish I had looked at it a little differently than that. But, you know, it, as soon as we started this, I just kind of put that show off to the side and went, I'm not even going to deal with that. Which is easy. Yeah. Well, so did I. So did I. You know, so did I. I put it off to the side. And then as I was looking at all the television, I thought, how can you not recognize what the show was? Right. Um, I know the man behind it, but the show and. Alicia Rashad and Malcolm Jamal Warner. I mean, it was was so funny. It was so brilliantly done and brilliantly created. So, so it it did make my list. I I did. have Very well said. All right. What about number six? My number six is family ties, family ties. One of the greatest sitcoms of the eighties. It introduced us to a political character who is not 35 years old or older. (laughs) And Michael J. Fox was, way in and watching him carry his little briefcase and be a Republican was hilarious. And then having two parents that were uh, clearly uh, leftist Democrats uh, was, was interesting. And it wasn't something we really were watching on television at the time and having it be a young person was a much easier access for people, I think. And it was funny and it was heartfelt and you definitely saw a family and what they were doing and how they were doing it. And that cast was great, and it was a wonderful show that I think um, became very, very popular in its day. So I'd say Family Ties, number six. Yay. Love it. 
I think I think we all have a bit of a soft spot for Michael J. Fox. Absolutely. Yeah, given, you know, that he did Back to the Future right when we started. And, you know, we, we just kind of watched him grow up before our eyes. So so I, I can absolutely see the 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 fondness for for family ties and, and especially his. And he was great. That's the other thing, too. He was really good in the role as well. He was great. And I will say his autobiography, Lucky Man, is one of the best autobiographies I've ever Oh, good. If you're looking for an autobiography, it is, it is absolutely fantastic. Oh, awesome. Definitely. I'll look for that. Love it. All right, we have uh, your last pick before we get into your Mount Rushmore. What is your number five? At the base of Mount Rushmore, <laughs> at the base, looking up, but not on the face, <laughs> the base, but not the face, Hill Street Blues. Mm. And I will say these next five, because my Mount Rushmore has a base, so five really could be moved in any order yeah. because all five of them are spectacular television. And they all have right. a different purpose and actually a different genre for all five. That's how that worked out. It just worked out coincidentally as I was doing my list. But Hill Street Blues is, to this day, I still think one of the best cop shows ever on television. Yeah. Yep. It was, those, those characters are unbelievable. The storylines were unbelievable, but believable. and you had to watch that show because people were talking about that show and what was happening in each episode. And the, the way they showed violence Mm -hmm. was watchable. Yeah. It wasn't gross. You, you could watch it and understand it and, and see how that world worked, how that cop world worked and who was in charge of whom and who had precedent and who had power. It was fascinating. And it led to all the others, all the others from Blue Bloods of Today, NYPD Blue, which came after. Like all of those shows all kind of grew out of the base that was set with Hill Street Blues. Yeah, it was shocking, violent at times, but it didn't just go overboard. And yeah, I, I appreciated that. Well, it was sure, thoughtful. Just like you. It was a thoughtful television series. Agreed. Okay. Well, if Hill Street is all there at the base of the mountain looking up, what are they seeing? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> so, okay, here come my four. So number four, Dynasty. I knew it. Many reasons. <laughs> Partly because I've watched every single episode from the original and now working on every single episode from the remake. <laughs> I know this show is the back of my hand. Um, it was brilliant soap. It was a nighttime soap. Dallas was great. And Who Shot JR was iconic. Dynasty, <laughs> Alexis and Crystal and Blake and Fallon and I can mention all the characters, some of them you won't remember, but I will because I've cast many of them in this new show. <laughs> it is, it's such a it's such a great soap because it's filled with comedy. It's filled with intense drama. There are cat fights where people push each other into the pool. There are murders, uh, deaths, marriages. Some of those characters were married five or six times. There's baby showers, there's funerals, there were court cases, there was jail, there were murders. I mean, it just covered everything. And it did it in a very glamorous way. It made us all, all us ladies put on shoulder pads, (laughs) all of our dresses all had shoulder pads. And it, our hair was bigger. Our 
fake diamond earrings were longer. We all looked at that show as glamour. Very much. And I I don't know that, that the 80s can be reflected better in the way we dressed than with Miami Vice and Dynasty. I wanted my wardrobe, my, my high-end wardrobe, I wanted to range from Miami Vice all the way up to Blake Carrington stuff. That's what I wanted my suit range to be. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Those are the, those are the clothes that we were wearing in the 80s. Michael Nader there, yeah. Raise your hand if you had a drinking game associated with Dynasty. <laughs> we used to sit around the dorms, and anytime they'd say the last name Carrington, you had to take wow. a drink. Now, that wasn't too bad until Alexis would come in a room yeah. and go, Blake Carrington. It's all about Carrington this, Carrington that, Carrington, Carrington, Carrington. I hate the name Carrington. And we're like, shut the hell up as we're starting to pound drinks. But to your point, it really did capture that that over-the-top 80s feel. Yeah. Alice for my Mount Rushmore, but it was an either-or. It was one of the two. And you don't lose with either one. So I just wasn't going to put two on my mind. Yeah. When I started working on this show and they said, okay, we're ready. We're doing the, the title cards and we're trying to get all the series regulars up there. And all of a sudden I heard it. Oh my God. I'm having a flashback. It's, you know, it's, it's it really, really happening. It really <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I love it. I, 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 I know the story so well because, like I said, we're redoing so many of them, and it's we call them the OGs when we go back to the original stories. And uh, yeah, it's such a wonderful show. It's over the top voyeuristic fun, but it's a ton of fun. It's great. All right, you've got a cop show and a soap. What's next? Of course, we have to have a medical drama, and that was Saint Elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I thought that show was brilliant. It was moving. It. It was the Grey's Anatomy of the 80s, the way Grey's Anatomy took over the 2000s and, you know, all of those, I guess, 2010s. It really showed the inside of a, of a hospital, the way Marcus Welby and Medical Center and those places didn't. We really weren't as concerned with how the hospital worked as what was going to happen with the doctors and the nurses. Mm-hmm. They became our friends and we were rooting for them and hoping for them and hoping these two would get together and those two wouldn't kill a patient. And you know, <laughs> it was, it was beautifully done. It was a beautiful show. And every episode had that heartwarming moment, whether it was with a patient or with a doctor, or with a nurse or with somebody working in the hospital and uh, such an incredible writing and such incredible cast. I love to say elsewhere. And I think it's truly one of the best medical dramas of television history. Agreed. I remember William Daniels talking with me on the set of Boy Meets World uh, in season one and the tough transition he was having going from that show onto a sitcom dominated by kids. It was it was a little bit of a a bumpy ride for him at first. He was like, what did I get myself into? But they took care of him and he he adjusted nicely. But yeah, St. Elsewhere, a great, great, great show. I'll bet Howie Mandel made that transition a little easier. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Probably. All right. Top two. Okay. Number two. It has been said earlier in the podcast, but Moonlighting is my number two. Moonlighting was the Hepburn Tracy of the next generation. First of all, the writing was great. Every episode was fun. And it led us into... 
the detective world without it being a dark detective show. And Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis were incredible in that show. They, they really had such great chemistry, whether it was off camera or not. I don't know. I don't delve into those kinds of things. But on camera, it was spectacular. And the show was fun. It was fun to watch. We all talked about it. Everybody, I think you guys said it earlier, everybody talked about Moonlighting. If you didn't watch it, you were out of the loop. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember being very, very upset when it was canceled. Oh, yeah. Truly, a a piece of me was going to be killed off because they were taking the show off the air. I loved that show. And I loved the comedy. I loved the the partnership. And, And then, of course, the stories, the crimes were great to watch. They were fun. Even today, so, if I see a really orange sunset in L.A., I think of the opening credits of mm-hmm. Moonlight. Yes. All I want to know is, did you guys compare notes ahead of time? Because the Tracy Hepburn reference was made by both of you. Wow. Okay, good. No, I did not speak to Kirk before this. Um, but, yeah, I think that there's a, there was a, I mean, it's very rare to have that kind. You, you don't see it as much. So when it's there, mm-hmm. it stands out. All right. So now we've covered cops, soaps, hospitals, detectives, which leaves us with a comedy, perhaps. Of course. (laughs) How do you not mention Diane and Sam? Come on. The best comedy. The best comedy. Cheers. The best. Cheers was everybody knows your name. (laughs) Everybody knew the song. That show was perfectly created. It was perfectly cast. Jim Burroughs did an incredible job in directing those episodes. The writing was so tight. They, the show was so good that they could lose a main character and replace her quickly. You could lose another character, you know, when Coach died. And then all of a sudden it was Woody Harrelson and you felt horrible that coach is gone and you felt excited that Woody was there. It was, everything was seamless on that show. You really got to know these people. You got to watch them. You got to, they could introduce characters so easily and Frazier just kind of fit right in, slid right in and then went off to do his own show. Carla had her own show for a while. Yeah. I still watch Cheers. They, it reruns on many of the networks, and every episode still makes me laugh. And those characters really do feel like friends. And I think Cheers was the pres- precedent to getting shows like Friends and Seinfeld and the buddy shows that we all got to love the following decade. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 one of, if not the best for me, the best comedy of. TV. I mean, look, I have some of my honorable mentions that I didn't go to that I love. <laughs> Bosom Buddies, one of my favorite shows ever. Maybe they did 30 episodes, right. you know, but it, it was so good. So I think I, I think for me, when you look at the 80s and you look at what set the what set the bar, I think Cheers set the bar for comedy. I think Moonlighting set the bar for the dramatic um, beauty. St. Elsewhere was medical. Dynasty was soapy. Hill Street Blues was was cop dramas. Those were the shows that I think really made the 80s television shows what they were. Yeah, that's well said. And I'll take it a step further. I think they all helped turn the page. Mm-hmm. 
they help move all of those genres along a little bit further. To your point, without Hill Street, do we have Law and Order? Without Cheers, do we have Friends? And when you get with Cheers, you know, the, you talk about those characters, they could have all been caricatures very easily. The womanizing jock, the bar fly, the know-it-all. But it was written so well, to your point, that they became the people that we know like that, and we embraced them. Agreed. John Ratzenberger was not just the postman. Right. You know, yeah. And give them credit, because John Ratzenberger wasn't even the role or the slot of the cast that he was ended up being. And they recognized that real quick, going, no, no, no. (laughs) If he's going to be seen a lot, let's give him something to do. He's the one who actually came up with the idea of the bar know-it-all and threw it out in the casting session. Mm -hmm. Because that always works, right, Sandy? Not always. <laughs> Not as much as we would like that too. There are certain people I would love to add to cast, but you know, it doesn't always happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Sandy, you phrased it so well. Uh, I think your Mount Rushmore deserved to have five faces, and uh, I think you constructed it very well. I hope you don't have chisel pan hands from all that sculpting you were doing, but. Uh, <laughs> No, I'm very happy with that with that group. And like I said, I mean, I, I had pages and pages of honorable mentions and things that didn't get. I don't know what's on, you know, as you guys are doing your list, but you know, shows like Fame and Night Court and Quantum Leap and Twenty One Jump Street and Wonder Years. I, I had so many that were on that list, and right. I, I think it was a wonderful decade for television. And because there were really only four stations, we watched them all. Yeah, we watched them all. Yeah, you're right. It was was more focused viewing. Yeah, you didn't have the multitudes of uh, streaming and all that out there for sure. Well, thank you for your insight. Thank you for your personality and your presence on the show again. We loved having you back. And uh, just good to see you. It's always good to see you guys. I love this podcast because I usually make my top 10 when I see the the subject of the episode. And then I wait to see how good I was in matching you. But it's, it's, well, I'm going to, I'm going to guess on a lot of the cases you were probably better than, so. Different. Different. Yes. Uh, yeah. Right, I mean, right, right. That's what makes the populace so good is everyone can have different opinions and then you can listen to someone else's opinion and say, wow, maybe that should have been on my list a little higher or wow, I probably should have not put that on my list or I, oh, I completely forgot about that show. So original hope of Kirk and I that this would just generate these kind of discussions and exactly. kind of bring back the the art quote unquote of list making amongst friends and comparisons so thank you again for being here uh, we hope to well if we have a season three who knows <laughs> we hope to have you back again there's gonna be a season three. <laughs> do it, do it. Oh, never commit too early right well, thanks for having me on, guys, and thanks for talking about 80s television. It makes me so, so happy and makes me uh, yearn for some of those shows again. Well, thank you. and you. I, I actually want to go out and watch a few of these tonight. <laughs> oh, you will. Yeah, I know you will. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, Sandy. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Be well. Thanks, Sandy. Mwah. Bye. It's always so good to see her. Uh, just love talking television and when we get together it's like that's we just talk 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 she's she has seen so much this woman has probably seen more shows than anybody that i'm aware of in my life 
No, Sadie has just got so much knowledge and she's got such great takes on these things. And, and even, even in this conversation, yeah, you know, we were talking about stuff and it was like, oh God, that's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, she, she's terrific. It's always good to talk with her. Yeah. And I, I love her point of view. So, oh yeah, we'll, uh, we'll definitely try to get her back in at some time uh, in the not too distant future. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it for this episode. It was fun. Uh, talking about 80s television shows trip down nostalgia lane uh but next episode we're gonna go back into the world of sports a little bit uh but not talk about any one particular sport we're gonna talk about best sports venues what are those things that are famous for being the venue that they are what adds the most to their particular game or gives the most home field advantage so we'll be looking at it from different angles but the best sports venues around the world for yeah. various sports that should be fun i'm looking forward to that and this this one was a lot of fun you know i think we talked about it off off broadcast or off air but but just just the research and all the memories it brought back up uh from our early days i just i i really enjoyed it so excellent choice for a topic my friend Good, good, good. Uh, had fun as well. Um, next week, we won't have a guest uh, scheduled, but in place of a guest, we will have a bonus feature for all of you. So tune in for that. And to tune us in, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or wherever you get your quality podcasts. Populist is a member of the Buzzsprout community, and we are a vintage year production. And Wherever you do happen to listen to us, we are always so grateful when you can give us a five-star rating and leave a positive review. It helps us uh, grow the show and grow our listenership. Uh, we are on Buzzsprout, as Kirk mentioned, uh, at populist.buzzsprout.com. Uh, we're also at facebook.com slash populistpod and on Twitter at populist underscore pod. That's where you can find us, learn more about what's coming up next and uh, the recent episodes. All right, dude. Good to see you as always. Good to talk and uh, start to get our sports hats on for the for the next episode. Looking forward to it. This is, this is uh, an interesting take on the world of sports. So uh, I hope we, we see all of you in a, in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. So until we do see you, everybody take care. We'll see you soon. Cheers, everybody. See ya. See ya.